Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Good evening, Jundo. How are you today? Oh, boy. So I got a 16-year-old who the hormones are kicking in, <laughs> and he's studying for the SATs, and he's wondering about the meaning of life, and he's mad at me half the time. I got a 9-year-old who's practicing karate. I had to drive her to karate and then the English school and then help her with her homework. Uh, oh, boy. Dad's tired. Wow, 16. That's right. It's been, yeah. I didn't realize how long it's been. Um, yeah, I'm I 60. Yeah. I got a 16-year-old yep. and a 9-year-old. Nine yeah, that's a that's a big gap in age. I'm 60 and I've got a 29-year-old, the only child I have. Um, yeah, well, so, I heard you're almost the kind of grandpa. Well, I, I guess technically sort of. My partner has two grandchildren. One's four years old, one's two or three months old. Um, right. But since we're not married, I guess that doesn't technically make me a grandfather. Well, you still get to bounce them on your knee. Yeah. Well, that's our subject today, the Zen of Kids. It it reminds me of that young period um, when my son was young. Again, single child, you've got two, but there's a big age difference between them. Um, that period of when you think you can mold them to see the world yeah. the way you want, when there are all sorts of possibilities, when there don't seem to be any limits, you know, before they start going to school and become indoctrinated in the world. You know, somebody said uh, years ago when we got the first uh, baby, or our, our two kids are adopted, and we got them when they were small, and someone said, you know, as a parent, it's not going to go as you plan, no matter what you do. All you can do is create a good environment like soil, toss in the seeds, and hope for the best. So far, it hasn't been terrible, but... uh you know, check with me in two years. As I said, my 16-year-old, <laughs> next year, 17, 18. I got a couple more years to get through here. Here. So you said he's studying for the SATs. Does that mean he's going to an American school? That's the plan. We live in Japan, but uh, he'll probably go to American University. Okay. So he'll be leaving you, going to another country thousands of miles away. Yeah, but you know, these days when kids leave, if it's across the country or across the world, is it really that much of a difference? If this they're not true. living my, at home anymore, they're somewhere. When my son went to university, it was several hours from where I was living. Uh, I lived in France at the time. Um, but this is pre-Skype. This was pre. This was like 12 years ago. So Skype and, and FaceTime and these things weren't as common. Um, and, and for him to come back, it, just the way the trains worked where I lived, it was a long trip. So it felt further than it was, but it's true that today... Um, he lives in Paris, and I live in the UK, and we chat regularly, and there is less of a distance. Well, I'm anticipating that uh, my son will Skype me whenever he needs money. I, you know, yes. I gave a few conditions to my son when he went to the United States. I said, look, I'm not going to tell you what to do with your life. He's interested in science, so hopefully he's going to be studying science. I said, just 
keep your grades up. Don't party too hard. I said, you know, going to the United States is a bit different from Japan. There's a lot of temptations, a lot more drugs. Try to... So he's in the U.S. now, in high school? No, no, he's going to be. I'm oh, try- okay. just trying to get him ready. Right. You're and I'm saying, ahead. stay out of jail. Try not to get anyone pregnant. <laughs> and um, I don't want to get a phone call where I have to get on a plane to fly to the other side of the world to get you out of jail. So yeah. if you just meet those few criteria, please have a good time. Yeah. And any idea where he wants to go? No, it's too early now. Okay. Uh, yeah, but, 16. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the sense of California, New York, Boston, that sort of thing. It's more a question, what can I afford? It's so expensive yeah. now. Yeah. The Buddha never had to deal with putting his kid through college. Well, he kind of walked out on his kids, didn't he? Well, that's the subject I want to talk with you about today. Yeah, he did. You know? He was uh, what you call a, a deadbeat dad. No, I'm just kidding. That's a that's a terrible thing to say. When I said that, uh, jokingly, sometimes uh, people remind me that his wife and his uh, child were, according to the traditional stories, later reconciled with him. But really, you know, we don't know. Those are uh, stories that were created long after he died. And really, the biographical information about his early life is very sparse in the early suttas. It just said he lived with his parents. There's almost well, nothing about... Well, even the about... early suttas were, were composed hundreds of years after his death. So well, they were it was written all down, made yeah. up. It was all made up. We don't know any if any of it's true. Right. But the details were certainly added gradually and added later. The early version, he has no wife and kid mentioned. Oh, after, I didn't realize that. No, just it says he lived with his parents. After a while, uh, there were different versions of the story, but he had a wife, he had a kid, and he had a midlife crisis. You know, in those days, I, uh, at, at the age he was, it was about uh, the middle of his expected life uh, for what people lived in ancient India. He was in his 30s, right? I believe he was 29 when he left home. And still living with his parents. <laughs> still, still living in the basement, yes. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I propose that maybe he just wasn't into uh, the home thing. He, maybe he wasn't into sex and women. We don't know, but whatever it was, the kind of suggestion that you might be making there. No, no. I mean, whatever it was, he had to find himself. Yeah. And, and like many men, he left. Now I don't criticize that because there are many reasons that men leave even today. For example, I got a friend who's a long-distance trucker. That's how he supports the family. He can't get home. I got another friend who's in the military. He's, he, he goes on off on uh, tours of duty for months at a time. Can't get home. There are many reasons that a man may have to leave. So if the Buddha left, you know, it, it wasn't exactly like he was poor. He left his wife and his child uh, in very wealthy circumstances. They were well taken care of. Uh, so he went off and did what he had to do. And they, they say that later his wife and, and children were reconciled to him. Now, one of the things the Buddha has been criticized about is encouraging other men to leave their wives. Right. Mostly not the women to leave. It was kind of sexist. Yeah. But it was pretty much a masculine organization. Yeah. I hope you don't mind. You can hear the, the cat has uh, uh, joined us for the podcast here. What's the cat's name? 
Yuriko. Yuriko, which means? Uh, Lily. Lily. Little Lily. Okay. Lily. Yuriko. Yeah. Okay. My daughter's um, uh, favorite right here. So when, if the Buddha was trying to get men to leave home, he was also affecting families because if the men were the ones who were making the money or, or working in the fields or, or hunting or whatever, he was telling them to leave their women and children alone. Yes, there are stories in the old suttas of uh, more than a few women who were left in difficult circumstances uh, because their husbands left to join the Buddhist Sangha. And I think, frankly, it was kind of a mistake. Now, I, I got to put an asterisk next to that because different people need different things. And it's not for me to tell somebody how they should act towards their family. But if you ask me, the Buddha could have found what he needed to find at home. Uh, you know, he found it under a tree. He went searching. He, he shaved his head and, and gave up sex. Good for him. That's what he needed. But whatever he discovered is present everywhere, and it could have been found in the home. As a matter of fact, the Buddha said, if you read carefully his words, he never said it's impossible to be liberated in this dusty world and in home life. He said it's hard. It's hard because of all the distractions. Because of all the distractions, right. Now, we've talked about this before, but about 150 years ago, Japanese priests started marrying. And most of the men uh, now have in the, live in the temple with the wife, with the kids, with the whole catastrophe. Uh, they were also worrying how to take the money from the temple and get their kids through school. You know, some people say it's, you know, it's an abomination, a Buddhist priest to be married with kids. But if you ask me, it's one of the finest things that has happened in Buddhism because it really brings this out into the world. I've always felt that people who are claiming to have some moral authority in a religion, if they don't know what the experience of having family is, they're missing out on a great deal of, of not only what life is, but the kind of difficulties and problems ordinary people can have. Wait, what's that terrible joke about the Pope and celibacy? You know, he who no play the game, make it the rules. You know yeah, that? yeah, yeah. Okay. You know that old joke. Yep. But it's true. You know, how can priests really speak to lay people if they are not living that kind of life themselves? And for thousands of years in Buddhism, it was said that the real game of Buddhism was to be a celibate monk in a monastery. And if you ask me, the real practice, the hard practice, is I was thinking about yep. this today with my son angry at me and my driving my daughter to the karate lesson. The real hard practice is out here in the world dealing with the wife and the kids and the mortgage and the yep. school fees yep. and all that. And the plumbing that doesn't work and the exactly. car that doesn't start and everything else. Yeah. But if you look at the history of all religions, there have always been um, groups of people who've gone to live as hermits and they tend to be looked up at. Um, but in a way, escaping the world, while it allows you to focus in a certain manner, it is escaping, isn't it? I, I want to be very clear. I'm not criticizing anybody. If you want to be a hermit, live in a cave. Be a hermit, live in a cave, if that's what you need. And if you're a monastic and celibate in a monastery, I celebrate that. But 
don't criticize practice out in the world and the married priest. Believe me, it's uh, where the rubber of Dharma hits the road. So what does one do to raise kids in, in, in a Zen manner? Is that the right word? I, I think even at, at young age, I don't think you're going to be trying to convert them into Zen practitioners, are you? It, it's, it's always seemed to me that the best way to act is to be an example. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, now every family's different. So I'm, I'm taking off my Zen teacher hat here and just put on dad's hat. I'm just talking to my family here. And other families have to work these things out for themselves. But I think that for your kids, just be an example. Raise them in a good environment. Show them how you deal with things. Uh, be loving. Try to get uh, show them that you're not very materialistic. Show them about moderation, that you yourself in your own life are moderate. Show them that you don't believe in violence. And hopefully, hopefully, now check back with me in 10 years. They may hear this podcast 10 years from now and laugh at, you know, oh, you know, yeah, sure, Dad. But I think, <laughs> I think, I, I, I really think that 10 years from now, right now they have no interest in Buddhism or Zen. They know I do, and they, they don't criticize me for it. They see me in the robes and things, but they have no particular interest. But I think that 10 years down the road, when they're in their 20s or so, okay, and they have life problems, they might think that, hey, let me look into that Buddhism. It worked for dad and mom. And then when they're older and can understand it, then they might turn for turn towards it because we're a good example. It's funny you said about not being materialist, and we're talking on Skype, and I can see your um, bookcases behind you with thousands of books in them. <laughs> well, I understand you know, this, this is this is the this is the material that you need to teach, but it's true that there is an accumulation of books over there that that rivals my collection of books. Well, excuse me, it's hard to raise a kid if all I have is a robe and a bowl. <laughs> You know, and, uh, you know, can you get a kid through college by basically doing, uh, uh, seeking donations in the street? I don't think so. You can I, have start a, up a I have a job. Me. Yeah. I'm a translator. Yep. Uh, we have a house budget. Yes. But I, when I, I say we're trying to be moderate, okay, I got a car. I got a 10 year old car. I have a house. There's no loan on the house. We got the house we could afford. It's an old farmhouse, you know? So I try to teach the kids, you know, to live reasonably. It's so hard in this day and age, though. Kurt. It is, yeah. There, there are so many oh, distractions. And, and kids, back, back in the day, you could hide a lot of the world from children, but you can't anymore. All they do is they look on their smartphones or their computers and they see what's going on. You, you can't pretend that, oh, yes, everyone lives like this, because it's certainly not the case. Well, well you know, one of the things I am a little proud of, and I would encourage other people is, I've gotten my daughter to recognize when people on the TV are trying to sell her things. She's that's very important. quick to spot, oh, yeah. that's a line, that's a yeah. gimmick, that's a, you know, a sales pitch. And she's only nine years old. So yeah. far, she's so good. And she's not into a lot of the fashions so far. And she's not demanding a thousand and one to toys so far. So far, so good. Now, will that last? I can't tell you. Check back. You, you were talking before we started recording about 
books for children that go in the right direction. And and I was thinking, you know, some of these publishers, they publish a couple of Buddhist children's books, but they always feel contrived, that sort of thing. And, and my first reaction to you was books for kids. I mean, Dr. Seuss, um, Winnie the Pooh, When They Get Older, or Shel Silverstein, The Giving Tree, books like that. There are tons yeah, yeah. of books. They're not specifically Buddhist books, but they do present the same sort of idea. A good lesson is a good lesson. Doesn't matter who wrote it. I'm always surprised when I read children's books. Boy, are those violent. You know, there's yeah. someone getting killed with an axe or getting their somebody to, oh my gosh, what, a, what, I didn't remember when I was a kid how horrible, you know, Hans <laughs> Christian Andersen was yeah. and all the, the brother, the Grimm stories. Yeah. They're grim. They're grim, yeah. <laughs> but uh, there are some really good uh, books that are generally Buddhist. I just like to mention a couple that are Go very uh, and we'll put popular. links in the one show is notes. called Stone Soup, and the other one's called Zen Short. If you can find those two books, they're they're very nice lessons. There's also one called Puppy Mind by Andrew Nan. Let me give a little plug to these books. Uh, we love them. I read them to my daughter. They're really sweet stories. Do your kids read the Harry Potter books? Not so far. Well, actually, my son might in Japanese, yeah. Yeah, because I remember the first ones were, you know, good children's books, but they got violent as they went along, didn't they? They got dark, yeah. Yeah, yeah. My, my yeah. son grew up in France, bilingual, so he speaks French and English. And when the seventh book came, we, initially when we got the books, they hadn't become popular yet. And on a trip to England, I found a couple of them in a store, took them back. I read them to him. I was reading him books until he was about 10 or 11. Um, and then over time, he read them in French. But when the last one came out, he had to have it on the day in English. And he read the whole thing. This was 800 pages. Um, but that, those, those sort of books, when, when I've, read, I've read them all, and they do get dark and they don't seem like children's books anymore. Well, you know, a lot of our Buddhist books, the Lotus Sutra, man, that would make a great kid's book if you rewrote it. It's a <laughs> lot of fantasy in there. There's every kind of magic. It's a, it would be a great kid's book. But, you know, you, I, I just want to turn to another way to, to approach kids that other families might seem uh, might be appropriate for them. And that is a little bit of creating a more religious environment. Now, a lot of folks were raised and rebelled against their childhood religion because maybe mom and dad overdid it. We have a lot of people in our Buddhist Sangha who are basically burnouts from their fundamentalist uh, childhood. And uh, really, uh, we have people who ran from their religious upbringing. But there's also a lot to be said with creating some kind of spiritual environment for kids in which you, you know, do the equivalent of going to Sunday school and church and having the Christmas tree and having the Easter celebration to try to get some lesson into the children. Now, maybe in Western Zen and other Buddhism, we're not doing this as much as we could. There are some Buddhist groups that are trying to actually have the Sunday school and have the, the Buddhist uh, events. For example, we have Obon, which is the Festival of the Dead, and some, people, some Buddhist groups have merged that with Halloween, you know. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, or Christmas, we, we had a Christmas tree, we called it the, the, the Bodhi tree, the, the tree of enlightenment, yep. but it was basically a Christmas tree. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, one uh, we I tried to recommend uh, I, to our group was instead of uh, putting out Easter egg, uh, you could put out chocolate elephant because you know there's something that when the Buddha was born, his mother saw an elephant. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Doesn't matter, but chocolate elephants instead of chocolate eggs. But it's basically the same thing. You know, the Jewish holidays were always about pain and suffering and persecution. <laughs> you know, here have a bitter fruit and eat salt. You know, like that. It was have an egg. But even even you you didn't grow up in an entirely Jewish neighborhood, so you must have known other kids who were um, who, who were involved in these traditions, did you? Yeah, I did, and also my father was uh, how to say very much uh, uh, not a religious. It was not a religious upbringing. Yeah. They were very very liberal, which uh, has made me think that maybe. Uh, they could have created more of a, of a religious environment, a little bit if they had wanted to. But my father at that point was, uh, you know, uh, religion is the opiate of the people, and he was, he was very much against it. So I, I had a very secular upbringing. Yeah. So you talked about Sunday school, and what's interesting, I had, my parents were, I'll say, atheist agnostic, but I went to a grade school that was attached to a church, and, and it was an Episcopal church, and we wore uniforms the way kids in the in the UK do when they go to school, you know, jacket and tie right. and all that. Um, so we had um, we had a service every morning. We sang hymns, and that actually gave me a great deal of respect for the hymn music that is part of Western classical music, European classical music. Right. Um, right. But I never went to Sunday school, and it seems to me that the whole Sunday school thing is more about socializing than it is about actually learning ideas of religion. Um, I know that it depends on what, which group you're involved in. Um, and I knew kids who went to Sunday school, and they would say, you know, they taught us a bunch of things, but it was mostly they would play and they would eat cupcakes. Well, yeah, maybe uh, the socializing, but there's nothing wrong with socializing. And actually, a lot of the, uh, for example, the Asian American and Japanese American uh, Buddhist uh, churches that have been here for a uh, hundred years and more uh, have really Sunday schools and they, 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 they have these programs and it does succeed. I think in, in passing down the religion to the next generation, most people, if they had a good experience in their childhood will stay or be influenced by the religion of their parents. So there are second and third degree, uh, third generation of Buddhists who inherit this because they had a good upbringing. Now, my kids are not getting a particularly Buddhist upbringing, so I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that they're going to discover it later. And sometimes I think maybe I should be doing a better job to introduce these ideas to them. I don't know. Kind of late for that, isn't it? I mean, for the older one, at least. Well, it is, yeah. If he's going to be going away to, to university in a couple of years, you, you, you've got a small window there. You better get busy. I'm afraid, uh, yeah, maybe I waited too long, but it's okay. I'm going to trust for the best. He will find his way. I just want to raise a good kid. I don't care if he's Zen or what he is. Uh, as long as he is uh, someone I can be proud of, then uh, I'm not that particularly concerned. He, he follows in my religion. Yeah. Can, can I turn this around and, and, and uh, look at the parents for a second? How does a parent be a parent with all the stress of that helped along by 
Zen. Mm. And that's something I'd like to discuss because being a parent is really stressful. And I have a lot of parents who come to our group, who, uh, which is mostly online, because they say, I have kids, I can't get to a regular Zen sitting, so I try to sit online with the Tree Leaf Sangha. But even then, oh boy, I try to sit and the baby's crying and the, my son is, needs something and calling mommy. What do I do? So I'd just like to give a couple of pointers here. Number one, the way we sit Zazen, Zen meditation is, we sit with what is. So you sit Zazen and the baby starts crying. You need to change the diaper. Ask me what you do. What do you do when you need to change the diaper when you're sitting? You change the diaper. I knew you were going to say that. Because that is also Zazen. All, it's part you know, of as the, the Buddha said, all things are changed. Yep. Yeah, yes, right. good, very good. Yeah. And we sit Zazen with our eyes a little open. Now, have your children nearby in the room. If they're crying, if they're, you know, just playing or noise. The real quiet nursery is between your ears. Let the noise be the noise and don't be disturbed in your heart. However, keep an eye open and if your son's about to knock over the TV or the candle, then get up and stop it. But otherwise, just accept and allow the situation. If your child needs to be cuddled, hold them and keep sitting Zazdan. If your child needs you urgently for something, get up. And that is also Zazen. And then come back to sitting later. You cannot be disturbed if your heart is at peace. That makes a lot of sense. I'm afraid I can't practice that anymore. The only thing I have around here is two cats that sometimes um, come in and bother <laughs> me when I'm sitting. Well, I was going to say, if your, your child is uh, going to knock the candle over, then get up. But I advise, uh, if you have children, don't light don't candles. Don't use candles. <laughs> it's the yeah. safest thing. I have a, fi a film I put up of something that happened a few years ago where my wife uh, had to go to her Aikido meeting and I had the Zazen. And uh, my little daughter was here. And I thought, what am I going to do? Am I going to cancel the Zazen? How am I going to do this? So I got the backpack. She was small enough at this time. <laughs> you know the backpack where you put the, 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 the child kid in the carrier, back? Yeah. 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 So I got in there. I'm, I'm doing the ceremony. I'm doing the bowing. And she's on my back. And it came time to ring the bell, and she was reaching over my shoulder and ringing the bell for me. And then it came time to sit Zazen, and she sat with me. She was very quiet. I think it was just the, the warmth, the, the comfort of being on my back. She sat the whole time. And she probably sensed lovely. your calmness as well. Yes, I do. Now, let me be clear. People ask me, should I get my child to sit Zazen? And I'm going to say, do not force your child yeah. to sit Zazen, they're too little. It's not necessary. The message is going to be lost. There are books about teaching mindfulness to your children. I don't think it works. I think it's a terrible idea. And my daughter, by the way, she used to look at me. It was kind of funny. And she'd say, Mommy, why is Daddy bad all the time? And, and my <laughs> wife would say, What do you mean? And my daughter said, Well, he's always sitting in the corner. <laughs> having his time out. But I think she understands now why I'm sitting. 
And she does come over and she sits with me once in a while. My son has no interest. Are you kidding? If, if, if there's no batteries and a, some game involved, <laughs> he, he doesn't care. But my daughter does come in. She'll sit with me for five minutes and she'll either fall asleep or wander off. And that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. It, it, she's expressing an intention, even though she doesn't know why or what she's doing. And I think that's good. Right. As long as she feels it's a good thing, maybe somewhere down the road, she'll try it herself. Where do we go from here, then? I don't know, but I got to be at karate tomorrow. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. And if you want Jundo to answer your questions, send us an email at podcast at zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.